0: Accessing Agent Files Brian Sovereign Early 21st Century Anarchist Creator and host of the podcast Sovereign Check. By the year 2021, the show would be instrumental in the downfall of various conservative ideologies in the government Helping usher in an incredible time Hey, want to take a walk on the wild side? and experience the bleeding edge of technology? Then get ready because it doesn't get much more edgy than this. You're in for a wild ride. You're listening to Sovereign Tech with your host, the man in triple black, the golden stallion of the tech world, Brian Sovereign. He's got a huge brain. And now here's Brian. Oh, yes. Dr. Brian
1: Sovereign, the Golden Stallion, the man of tomorrow, here for an exciting episode of Sovereign Tech. Oh yes, we've got a lot to cover as always, but woo boy, have we got some good news in this one. I think a lot of times people feel like, wow, boy, Sovereign Tech can be such a downer or it goes way out in left field. No, no, not this week. This is this is a doozy. So why don't we go ahead and, and break right into it. I will let you know, though, that the Liberty Forum wrap-up special uh, is on its way. Did go to Liberty Forum. Pretty much had a good time, I thought. So the lovely and hyper-intelligent Dr. Stephanie Murphy and I will be uh, covering that. So anyway... Rapid fire stories, because wow, I mean, we're going to talk a lot of hardware this week. So many events have occurred. Some were exciting. Some were, I'll admit though, those were some were depressing. I read this review of GDC, which is the 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 Gaming Developers Conference, and I, like. I, I, I don't even know what world I'm in, you know, <laughs> maybe it's a bad time for me to be a game developer. I don't, I don't know, but reading it, I, I just, I, I walked away as a story on Kotaku. I walked away from it. And I was just like, well, oh, the world's just really lost its mind. Not that I didn't know that already, but it's really lost its mind, especially when, when the, you know, gamers are speaking in front of, uh, in front of Congress these days, apparently, you know, due to the, the nonsense that is GamerGate, but anyway. Uh, you know, other events that, that that happened. Of course, there was the big Apple event. We're going to talk about that. Uh, Mobile World Congress. Uh it's been a couple weeks since I've recorded an up-to-date episode uh of Sovereign Tech. So a lot of these things have happened and some information is, has come that uh you know I didn't really get to talk about in last weeks which was very early pre-recorded uh episode of Sovereign Tech. So we're going to get into all of that. A lot of events happening all you know and so let's let's cover some of it. Uh but I'll admit that this first segment of the whole show uh is the this whole first segment is going to be largely about hardware. But Let's start off with just a touch of software in the random access, and that is Cortana. Now, recently I had been asked, hey, which one of these, uh, you know, kind of uh, assistant software, personal assistant software uh, uh, things that have come out like Google Now or even Blackberries, or, uh, uh, you know, uh, Siri, of course, Apple Siri, which one of these or Cortana from Microsoft, which one is going to take the cake? And I said that the best one running right now that I saw was uh, was honestly Cortana. And it did come out from Reuters that apparently Cortana will be coming to uh, Android and iOS. Now, whether or not it's going, that means that they're going to develop uh, for Amazon's platform, perhaps, which really doesn't have a personal digital assistant uh, software. Uh, But you know, I, I don't know. But then by default, of course, it could work for BlackBerry, right? Uh, but the reason I bring that up is because Microsoft has recently been making a lot of their apps, like their their MSN apps and others, available in the Amazon App Store. And there's really no good reason not to put them there, uh, since it's totally you know it's just Android. I mean, there's no reason if you can put it on Android, you can put it on the in the Amazon App Store. And so why not? Uh, so that might be coming that way too. And of course, you know, on a consumer level, that makes Amazon's devices all that more appealing. Uh, But anyway, Cortana is, you know, as I understand it, I've recently learned about this, that it it may be the quote unquote killer app uh, for Spartan, the Project Spartan, which is the new web browser that, uh, you know, that Microsoft's coming out with for Windows 10, and that is going to replace Internet Explorer, because Cortana will be very much interlinked with, with project spartan as i understand it so this could be a big deal this could really really make uh, microsoft kind of that king of the software world once again even though you know, some could make the argument, considering how many computers have Windows installed on it, that that's still kind of true. Uh, Android would be the only OS that would that would best it. So, uh, you know, I, I think it's interesting. I'm intrigued to test out Cortana. I am just going to test it out. I have no need for a personal digital assistant of any kind. I've And, you know, also, Cortana, apparently, again you would have to trust Microsoft, let's be clear on this, we're talking on the consumer level, Uh, can show you what information, you know, the bulk of the information that it actually collects on you and what it stores. Now, of course, let's be clear on this, Microsoft is probably going to store that information forever, even though they give you the illusion that Cortana gives you the control of that. But that's better than what Google does. It's better than what Apple does. That's for sure. So uh, and a lot of people have talked about this recently, that especially we're going to get into what Apple uh, released in this past week here in a minute. But, you know, Siri's really dropping the ball. Siri, there hasn't been a whole lot of improvement in development uh, for Siri in maybe years. I mean, for, you know, since its inception, really, there hasn't been a whole lot of uh, improvement. In fact, if anything, uh, they've removed features from it. So you know, who knows? It's 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 uh, interesting what what exactly they have in mind with it, or if they want to go into another direction. I don't know. You know, maybe they're looking into making it stable with uh, with the desktop. You know, with OS X, and they just haven't gotten around to it. I'm not sure what's going on there. But anyway, Cortana Cortana is coming to Android and iOS. That's so pretty much a certainty, and I don't see any reason why it wouldn't. Uh, but it's its functionality in that I think is definitely going to be based upon. You know how well does it work on a person's desktop? You know how how good is that transition? Because that's the beauty of Google now, right? Is how well it transitions from desktop to mobile. But anyway, a uh, little science news before I get into some of the some of the hardware. Uh, according, this was a story that just came out this past week. According to infrared telescopes, taking a good peek at Mars, they have shown that for. About 1.5 billion years of Mars' history, it had an ocean, and a big one at that. Uh, You know, as far as its depth, I don't think that's been totally, uh, you know, clarified. But it had an ocean for a while, which lends itself to perhaps having supported life. Uh, Or, you know, not just supporting life, but having life evolve there, Uh, which is an interesting concept when one considers lava tubes and other things. And I'm just going to leave it at that. But I just want to put that out there that, hey, you know, maybe some life started on Mars. I'm certainly, you know, open to that. It might not have been complex life. Who knows? Uh, but 1.5 billion years to have an ocean. That's a long, long time to allow for a lot of things to happen on such a planet that is considered so dead uh, but maybe that uh, dovetails nicely with what we were talking about last week which i have to say thank you so much because i went on some really wild speculation there and that might not have been everybody's flavor i don't know because uh, the downloads for last week's episode were the the extremely minimal <laughs> compared to most episodes but that's fine whatever um but some people did express, uh, you know, they really they really appreciated the fact that I'm willing to, you know, really go out there. And, and as long as I'm clear that it's speculation and I was that, uh, you know, that it's fun to think about. And I agree. That's part of the reason I love doing the shows, because it's fun. It's fun to think far out, even if you have, you know, the evidences found wanting. Uh, It is fun to do that. But, you know, we did, we talked about Ceres or Ceres, however you want to pronounce it. And apparently the best answer going right now is that that reflection on on Ceres is a, it's obsidian. It's an obsidian deposit that's reflecting because now they're seeing a bunch of these reflections. So what does all that mean? Could there still be a mining operation for some obsidian? (laughs) Uh, who knows? But of course, you know, always come to your own conclusions on these things. Uh, but let's, let's get back into the random access cause we got a lot to cover. So boy, here's a, I don't even, I, so a story came out this week about iNation, not BitNation, iNation. And once again, now it does, it is being headed by a couple of people, David Mondris and Nathan Wozniak, uh, who both are, you know, admittedly, they're they're nice guys. okay. Uh, but they they are heading this new venture to and they are concentrating iNation, which is very similar to BitNation. They are concentrating it on the first world, on, you know, North America, uh, you know, Western Europe. And all of that is to where BitNation apparently somewhere, and I don't know when this happened, but somewhere along the line, BitNation somehow said, OK, we're going to help the third world. And I don't know when that occurred, but iNation is going to help the first world. And if you don't already know my thoughts on BitNation, honestly, they, they all pretty much transmute to, to iNation. Uh, Because, again, it is just this, you know, document storage system, blah, 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 blah. We're going to talk about bitcoins during tech roulette or we're going to talk about crypto technologies, blockchain, blockchain technologies, et cetera. uh, you know, during tech roulette. So we can hold off for that. Um, But again, it just comes down to with, you know, with iNation, if people want this thing, they want it, they use it, whatever. Okay, but. Most of these, these titles, registries, you know, registrations, uh, licenses, all that stuff. It's all just bloat and extra complexity on life. And, you know, in these contracts, it's just not necessary. You know, that's the thing, especially when we're talking about this is stuff all being done in code. Well, the first rule of code is to get rid of the non-essentials. That's how you have beautiful code. Well, guess what? In my opinion, and it's not just my opinion, OK, because I can always show, please, whenever I, you know, I think a lot of people uh, want to accuse me of fear mongering or something like that. No, I can actually show historical examples of anything I ever talk about to say that, yes, what I'm talking about isn't just possible, but it may have already happened. Uh, you take your pick. OK, and, and I lay them out on Sovereign Tech every week. OK, but. You know, a lot of these things, they're just they're bloat. They're not necessary. Not necessary. They are non-essentials. These licenses, you know, be it marriage licenses, be it uh, car registration, all this stuff. It's all non-essential. And to bother, there's nothing. What's the old quote? Uh, There's no greater waste of time than making something efficient that doesn't even need to exist. Okay, and that's my point. With with this iNation and BitNation and Factum and Ethereum, which, <laughs> hey, where's your Ethereum, baby? It's March. It's the end of March. Come on. Yeah, anyway. So that, that's my point, is that all this stuff is, it's just not necessary at all. Like, and the world would be better off without it. So, it, yeah, I don't buy it. But anyway iNation is out there. You can look into it. Maybe you feel that you need a contract for something. And if you do, well, iNation's there for you. And I will say, Mondris and, and Woznak, nice guys. Okay, so whatever. Uh, all right. Let, let's get into that hardware. I've been wanting to talk hardware for a bit here now. Uh, I did en- in last week's episode. I did mention, but I didn't have the details on it. Uh, Blackphone and Blackphone Plus. There's Blackphone Two and Blackphone Plus. And this is coming from the company Blackphone, run by Phil Zimmerman and plenty of others that are really highly regarded. Uh, in the crypto space, in the hacker space. Uh, and they, you know, they came out with the first Blackphone, which we highlighted on Sovereign Tech. Uh. Over a year ago, I guess. And that was an exciting development, you know, to happen. Um, But now, you know, I was curious. I was like, what exactly do they have in mind? I don't you know, how is this all going to pan out? Because they recently Blackphone bought Geek's Phone, which was the company that was actually making the hardware for them while Blackphone was doing all the software end. And so I still don't know precisely if they are going to keep you from putting uh, Facebook messenger onto the phone. Cause like I said, as soon as you do that, unless they have some kind of, you know, software uh like like feedback loop or something to keep it from accessing your microphone and whatever in your contacts and whatever else Uh, i don't know how putting facebook messenger on anything could any in any way make it secure uh or you know that that device could somehow considered be to be secure uh and so i don't know how that's working but they have really sewn up everything else in fact apparently because they're because they now own geeks phone they are controlling the shipping they are controlling all these things and they made it very very clear And Mobile World Congress, Blackphone did, they said, we are, you know, we are making sure that the NSA cannot get their hands, of course, to the best of their ability, on our devices, because we're going to control the shipping. We're going to control everything. All right. So now I'm not saying that's a silver bullet, but I love their attitude. And I love that that's what they're shooting for. And that Blackphone Plus, which is the tablet, is actually a seven inch phone. Okay. It's not just a tablet. It's a seven inch phone. Honestly, I'd rather it just be a tablet because I think when something has a SIM card, uh, yeah, right. (laughs) You know, that, that baby's not secure. In fact, isn't it hilarious? We talked about Jamalto, I think last week, or maybe it was the week before, how the SIM cards, you know, all their all their private keys have been cracked uh, by the NSA or CIA or whoever, you know, and then Jamalto came out and said, oh, no, no, no. Like, yeah, they could do this, but it probably didn't happen. And isn't it amazing? Some other security researchers had said this. Isn't it amazing that somehow a company that has operations in 85 plus countries around the world was able to do that deep level of a security, uh, (laughs) uh, you know, security, you know, research inside of a couple days or a week, even like, I I mean, it's mine. There's no way they could have looked into their into that problem uh, as well as they did uh, or as well as they claimed that they did. So anyway, you know, I, I think just and maybe we'll talk about this more uh, throughout the episode. But I, I think as far as having secure operations, uh, by and large, cell phones, smartphones are just a lost cause. So moving on, though. So the black phone, the good stuff, definitely something worth looking into. They've got the right attitude, no doubt about it. I'm happy that they exist and they are looking to, uh, you know, work with uh, enterprise environments, which I think is great. So anyway, uh, Project Loon. This is something. Talking about the the Internet being everywhere. And we'll get into more Google in just a second. But Project Loon is it's out there. It's happening. This is Google's uh, balloon project where they are going to transmit Internet down to the planet, you know, down to the the terrestrial realm. from balloons circling the Earth. And uh, some interesting information about that is that now it's already been started using in Australia, I think, Australia, New Zealand, and there's a couple of other areas where they've launched them. So but now these balloons, I guess they can stay up in the air for six months. We're finally starting to get some data on that and that they can provide LTE speeds. Now, I thought they were just going to provide 3G, but I guess it's 4G LTE speeds that they can transmit down and and one balloon can cover an, uh, an area the size of Rhode Island which is by you know 50 by 50. you know you have 50 miles across you know 50 miles north south 50 miles east west about I mean it's, it's more like 49 and 30 I think but I'm just rounding there. So uh, yeah Rhode Island's that small <laughs> but uh, yeah so so that that's that's interesting that, that it can do that uh, you know there's we may want to talk about that a little bit more considering what the CIA does with what are known as dirt boxes. Uh, On planes, you know, are these Google loon, uh, you know, is this Project Loon? Are these Google balloons just dirt, proverbial dirt boxes, which are boxes that uh, try to trick and take information and identify uh, various devices like smartphones that you're using around the world? Is that what this is all about? Uh, Who knows? So, but Project Loon's out there, it's happening, it's real. uh, It's the first implementation of a lot of this getting the internet to the third world kind of business. uh, And it seems to work pretty well uh, for what it is I mean to be up there 6 months and to transmit across that large of an area that's pretty damn good I I have to admit. So uh but more Google News. Google actually they released an, and and th- th- there's some interesting points to this. So first off is they started a store.google.com. They have a Google store now which isn't any different really from the Play Store other than this is specifically for selling hardware. Phone, you know, smartphones, tablets, Chromebooks, you take your pick. Now there's not the odd thing is that they did stop it's they did stop selling the Nexus 5 okay so everything on the store.google.com website is plural and The problem with it being plural is that they're only showing off one device for each thing. So I guess you can expect more devices in the near future. In fact, May will be Google I.O. 2015. I'm sure some stuff's going to get announced then. Uh, But everything they have listed, like they only have one tablet. It's the Nexus 9. They only have one phone. It's the Nexus 6. And uh, the more interesting thing is that they did finally come out with the Chromebook Pixel 2. The, the sequel to the Chromebook Pixel, which at one point I was a big fan of, and actually Linus Trovolds considers it the greatest computer on the market today. The original Chromebook Pixel, that is. Now, the Chromebook Pixel 2 is, and I want to talk about this, is really no different than the first one uh the design is exactly the same admittedly it's a beautiful design again we're talking from a consumer standpoint not from a security standpoint or a privacy standpoint okay uh but it is a gorgeous design you know the piano hinge the little light bar on it that now can apparently in the chromebook pixel 2 can actually tell you uh battery life Uh, i think that's fast you know that that's kind of a, a neat little trick to have a little bar that 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 works as a battery meter at the same time. And speaking of the battery, that's the real improvement here. The major improvement is that it uh, it can get 12 hours, supposedly, according to Google. So 12 hours, that's pretty damn good uh, for any laptop to get that kind of rating. And that was the big problem with the Chromebook Pixel and why I never really recommended it to people. The original one was that its battery life was at best five hours. That's terrible, especially for something that is running such a quote-unquote lightweight though maybe it's not so lightweight we'll talk about that in a second uh lightweight os as chrome os is by comparison i suppose so the chromebook pixel i mean and and it's it's still got that that really nice you know that high high end you know that even higher more pixels than even apple delivers that three by two screen uh and and it has you know the back of the keyboard all that good stuff uh then uh, let's see, as far as storage, that's where it gets interesting because there's a model, there's a thousand dollar model that has 32 gig of storage and, and it also has eight gig of Ram. And then there's a $1,300 model that has uh 16 gig of Ram and a 64 gig hard drive in it, which that becomes a little more practical if you want to like run Krubuntu, you know, load Linux onto it uh, or whatever, because it is a beautiful machine for what it is. Let, let, let's just be honest about that. It's gorgeous. Um, but the Chromebook Pixel, uh, the interesting thing to bring up here is the RAM. OK, the RAM is the real story here. The low end model, which, by the way, none of these have LTE anymore. Last year, that was an option, not an option. Now, as I understand it, the low end model. OK, the thousand dollar Pixel 2 has eight gig of RAM and the high end model has 16 gig of RAM. Now, if Chrome OS or Essentially, Chrome, Google Chrome, the web browser, is so lightweight, so efficient, you know, so, uh, so fast. Why the fuck does it need eight gig of RAM or 16 gig of RAM at that? I think that tells the story. What it tells is that Chrome and a lot of people have been complaining about this recently, that it's so full of bloat and that it's so slow and it's crashing constantly uh, that that Chrome OS, you know, all the, or Chrome, all those those, uh, you know, selling points that people tell you, it's like, oh, it's fast, it's clean, it's efficient, it's this all of it's totally untrue. And in fact, in fact, Firefox might be better off, you know, it might be the better deal as far as speed and all of that. I think that's the thing. This is an admission. And I know the Pixel 2 is, you know, they're trying to sell it towards developers. Right. But I think it's actually it's, it's a it's a real subtle admission. That Chrome is totally bloated. It, it's really memory, res- you know, uh, resource intensive. It's really a memory hog is my point. Uh, and, and so the truth is out. I think the Pixel is admission of that. Tr- the Pixel 2 is admission of that truth. So nice computer. I wouldn't begrudge anyone owning one. It's beautiful. OK, I'd want to put Linux on it pretty fast, but it's beautiful. But but that's that's the real truth behind the Pixel 2, in my opinion, is that is is that that memory thing. It is a memory hog. And that's why they loaded that baby up. Uh, otherwise, I don't really see that. I mean, do you need 16 gig for Chrome OS. What could possibly need that? And maybe it's a hint into their future plans, uh, you know, with with Chrome OS, you know, WebGL and, and all that stuff. So anyway, uh, don't don't buy the official story. <laughs> Uh, So let's get into uh, our last, our couple of our last bits of hardware here. The MacBook. This is the thing that, boys, got everybody. It, this is a pretty divisive device, but I'm. Uh, The MacBook is interesting because what this is, it's a new, it's not replacing the MacBook Air. Apple, they had their big event, you know, spring forward event, whatever. And they they updated the MacBook Air. They updated the MacBook Pro. Okay. And then they released just the MacBook. And the MacBook is a, like a, a 12 inch device, essentially. And it's a laptop it it's again it's not replacing the air but it might as well uh it comes in and this was interesting it comes in gold gray and of space gray which is their version of black and i'll admit as soon as i heard that they were selling a black laptop again i was like ho oh, oh, ho oh. <laughs> I got a little excited. Um, but, uh, yeah, so, so they have, you know, it comes in three colors, which is very different uh, from what they normally allow for. Uh, and the big the big deal here, I mean, it has a dual-core processor. All The specs, whatever, it, it's going to run OSX fine. That's the bottom line there. You're probably not going to want to do any, like, heavy editing with it of any kind or any serious work, perhaps. But they do seem to be billing this as your secondary computer. It seems to be more an answer to Chromebooks. Uh, than anything else, but the really the really divisive part about it, because you can expect the the usual Apple quality, uh, is the fact that it only has one other than an audio jack, it only has one port on it. It's used, it has that USB C, which is the uh, you know where where it's interchangeable. You know it, it, you can put the plug in the USB any way you want, uh, and this works as the charger, the HDMI. It works, you know, the video out. It works as the, you know, to connect external hard drives and external devices. Uh, It's one port to do all of that. And that's where everybody's kind of freaking out. And I think it's, I I think it's kind of unfair. I I don't, for people to say, wow, this is so dumb of Apple to do this. Well, you know, I remember back when I was an Apple fanboy, back in 98, when I bought the very first generation iMac, I was, Steve Jobs was the man. And I was like, yeah, all right, right. I'm Steve Jobs is back. I am with this. Let's do this. And I bought me a first-generation iMac. Everybody thought it was insane that it didn't have serial ports because those were incredibly popular at the time. All it had was USB 1 ports all over the place. It didn't have a parallel port for a printer and and, of course, Ethernet, but... You know, that that's all it had. And then it had, uh, you know, it didn't even have, this is the big one, it didn't have a floppy drive. It had a CD drive, but it didn't have a floppy drive. People thought that this was suicide to sell a computer, you know, with with none of those features back in 1998. And but they were proven wrong. USB became the standard and Apple really forced that hand. Uh, Apple also pushed the industry away from floppy drives. It did so much. Now, granted, I know people will say, well, but also the first USB, the most uh, purchased USB accessory for the iMac was a floppy drive sure fine people still needed it but it was the option but it still pushed the industry forward and i think apple will do so again in fact that chromebook pixel also has this USB C, where that charges you know does everything in one Uh, i think they'll push it forward again there's not there's no ethernet ports on this thing there's nothing it all works out you know everything's pretty much wireless wireless ac and bluetooth and all that good stuff on this macbook um and and so, I you know, I don't doubt it. I think this is going to do fine. I think that this is, in fact, they spent so much time talking about the MacBook. I think it really was to take away, and it's a fine device. I think it was to take away from what they perceive as the failure of the Apple Watch. And that's the main thing that I want to talk about this week uh, is the Apple Watch. But before I do, you know, look, I don't... <laughs> With smartphones, if you want an iPhone, rock yourself an iPhone, because like I said, I think smartphone security, by and large, is a lost cause. Okay, it's not going to happen. So having Apple or Google and Google's already, you know, Android's as bad as iOS as far as tightening things up, uh, by and large. Anyway, you might as well. Okay, I don't I don't have a problem with people owning iPhones as far as owning a Mac. Well, you know, this is the funny somehow Mac gets owning a Mac somehow gets you away with. Like the whole stigma of, oh, you know, Windows is closed, so i all I'm like, oh, Windows, fucking Windows, you know, and all this stuff. And, like, all these people that use these cases, that make these strong security cases for why you should be using Linux and whatever else, okay, but if you use a Mac, well, somehow Mac is just as good as Linux. I don't know in what realm, you can even talk to Richard Stallman about this, that that's, like, acceptable, And I'm not, look, I use a Windows machine. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying that for whatever reason, the security professionals of the planet, the people creating the decentralized future and all that, use Macs. Okay, so I don't, you know, if someone wants to make a case that Macs aren't secure, well, then we've got a huge problem because anybody developing for, you know, the, the shit that I'm excited about anyway is using Mac. So go ahead. It's fine. If you're asking me, is it, you know, is it a good idea to buy a MacBook? Apparently it is because that's all Silicon Valley uses. So go for it. Uh, but anyway, um, this so the same event that showed off the MacBook showed off and gave a lot of the details about the Apple watch and boy this is the this is the real story here uh because if you ever needed more proof that it's going to be a flop uh kevin rose who i like kevin rose kevin rose uh he's a he's actually an apple fanboy so this is interesting and also he is a big fan i use the app watchville uh because i, I dig watches i wear watches i've i've worn a watch forever and I'll, I'll talk about that more in a minute okay uh but he wrote up a, a story on TechCrunch, it was a kind of a guest blog and it uh it <laughs> has a hell of a name. The gold Apple watch is perfect for douchebags. So now just to give you a little bit of background, we found out the pricing for the Apple watch, which the it is three fifty for the lowest end. And then, you know, then there's the gold one. And when you put on whatever various, uh, you know, watch bands that are available for it, the highest end can cost you seventeen thousand dollars for this thing. So let let's let's read this here. Uh, I'm a mechanical watch collector and self-admitted Apple fanboy. I wanted to love the Apple Watch Edition. Edition equals marketing speak for gold, but I don't understand the value here outside of the literal one to tr- one to two troy ounces of 18 karat gold, which is valued at about 1,800, you know, 900 to 1,800 dollars. With its luxury watch offering, Apple missed me as both a technologist and collector. Let me explain. The path to the technologist's pocketbook is paved with surprise, bleeding-edge technology. For Apple to succeed with the watch edition, it would need to offer us more technically. Say, an extra sensor or a higher-resolution display that has yet to hit high enough production volumes to make it throughout the rest of the line. The technologist could then point to these features as justification for the extravagant purchase. After all, higher tech is the reason they purchased the Retina MacBook when it was first released. Sadly, this is not the case here. As nothing is different technically in this watch, except for the addition of gold, for which you pay an over $7,000 markup on. Okay, so, so Kevin Rose is specifically talking about the gold version of this watch. We'll talk more broadly after I read the story about the watch itself. Uh, let's see, selling to the collector. The watch collector craves the story, the artisanship of a collectible watch. Uh, why we enjoy the painstaking craftsmanship that goes into making a timepiece that will last for decades. A popular advertising campaign by storied watchmaker uh, Patek Felipe states, quote, you never actually own a Patek Felipe. You're merely looking after it for the next generation, end quote. And uh, yeah, definitely. I mean, you, you take your pick of the company. They all kind of say the same thing is that this is stuff. The, these are watches are made for the ages you know it's the very nature of the time that they are tracking so uh reading on will the apple edition watch last uh, to the next generation for me to purchase this watch as a collector apple would need to create a different and more expensive fabrication process that uses new internal not just external meaning the gold materials specifically built to stand the test of time sell me on the story of lasting technology a watch that even went out of date will still function for my grandkids, a watch that won't be shuffled off to a corner of your closet like an old iPod. As with traditional watches, add in a transparent sapphire back. I imagine something similar to the digital FP Journe Elegante would do, showcasing the internal upgrades would also add to its collectability. Right now, the, with the Apple Watch Edition, the buyer is getting the same internals of the $349 version in a gold case. Where's the collectability in that? I believe watchmaker Roger Smith best sums it up in saying, in reference to the late watchmaker uh, Dr. George Daniels, creator of the coaxial ex, uh, escapement, f- quote, for it takes a lifetime of experience to create pieces that he did. So when a collector buys a Daniels watch, they are not buying the year that it took Daniels to make the piece. They are buying the many years of self-sacrifice that it takes in order for a man to rise to a level where he can create greatness, end quote. Mass-produced materials or internals created in China by machines doesn't create a feeling of craftsmanship or an or an aura of exclusivity, both key tenets of a high-end collectible timepiece uh, that a high-end collectible timepiece must have. And Golden stallion, I wanna I wanna uh, just butt in here. Uh, please don't 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 consider this you know uh, elitist uh, effete or whatever you know don't 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 don't. People want handmade shit, even that aren't elitist, even that aren't insanely wealthy. Okay, you just look at Etsy, which at some point we should talk about what Etsy's doing these days. But Etsy is a clear case that people, you know, uh, of lesser means, are very interested in craftsmanship and in handmade. This is not just something for people of means. All right, so let's go on selling to the gold lover. Apple's focus should be on selling as many watches as possible, not becoming a fashion brand. Gold, the color, is hot right now in the fashion world. Why not use technology to get the gold watch in the hands of more people? Why didn't Apple develop some type of 10x stronger gold coating, or 10 times stronger gold coating, giving us the same visual aesthetic with the technological payoff? I'd happily pay an extra $500 to $1,000 for that upgrade, but we don't need solid gold on something that is disposable after a couple of years. So I'm lost. Who is this watch for? Without a technological advantage and no upgrade or trade-in path, I would imagine the value to the consumer is that of broadcasting wealth. There are certain markets where this watch will sell well. Regions of China and Dubai come to mind. But elsewhere, I fear that we'll look at the watch edition, the gold edition, as actress Anna Kendrick did. And this is a tweet from Anna Kendrick. We should be, quote, we should be thanking Apple for launching the $10,000 Apple Watch as the new gold standard. In douchebag detection <laughs> I'm not sure that's the image Apple wants and that's the end of the story there now a lot a lot to take in there there's there's so much that that article says uh, that that isn't you know may not be readily apparent one of the things that that says to me yeah the gold watch is is just fucking it's bullshit okay it, it's bullshit that something is getting sold for $17,000 or whatever to last you only a couple of years. Now there's some, we talked about the admissions like with the Chromebook pixel 2, the admission that Chrome is a bloated piece of shit. Okay. Because of all the Ram that the pixel two needs. Now let's talk about some of the other admissions that come with the watch with the Apple watch, not just the gold one. It has a replaceable battery. The battery is replaceable. If that's not an admission that these you know these built-in batteries and all that stuff go bad in a very short period of time and that that is somehow a built-in obsolescence i don't know what else is an admission by the tech world the other admissions here Kevin Rose clearly lays out there's ways that you could make this more, you know, more indestructible, more beautiful. There's so many things that you could do that are available that would cost $500 to $1,000 more. And here's the thing. If you could buy a computer that was practically indestructible and meant to last the ages and it only cost you $500 to $1,000 more, I would absolutely hash out an extra $1,000 to have a computer that would last me a lifetime. Absolutely. So it's possible, like Kevin Rose says, okay, but it's not going to happen. This whole, this whole gold watch just showcases how Silicon Valley is all about, you know, not about efficiency, not about class even, you know, not about any of this stuff. It's all about selling you this recurrent selling, this built-in obsolescence. It's all about hooking you in. And you know, into into an ecosystem, into one company. It's all about the hook. It's not about actually helping you with anything. And let's—I mean, we could even we could talk about what is the purpose of the Apple Watch. The best the best uh, uh, case that I've heard made is that since Apple doesn't, uh, since iOS doesn't really do widgets, and Android does, and they're really popular on Android. Apparently, I don't use them. Okay, uh, you know, it is going to be the widget center for your phone. That's what the Apple Watch is going to be. That's an interesting case, maybe for some but you're gonna to have to charge this every day i mean there's just so much wrong with this and kevin rose highlights you know even with the gold watch it speaks for the whole the whole article speaks for the whole idea of the watch itself and i i hate the crap that's going on you know that people are talking about like there's statistics going around saying well anybody under 35 doesn't wear a watch bullshit man i'm 33 i've been wearing a watch for 20 years i still do and mine's pretty damn smart. It's got a calculator on it. Woo. This is nonsense. Watches are fine and dandy things. Okay. I like watches. But part of the thing that's great about watches is that you don't have to charge them every day. That they last. That, you know, that, I mean, you know, with the battery in my watch, it, it goes 10 years. 10 fucking years. There's a point to it. These people, none of these people that are developing the shit or that use this shit live in the real world. There's no real world application in anything that they're doing. With the smartphone, it was a very different story. There was some real world application for that. The cell phone made a degree of sense. Portable communications. It was just, you know, beefing up. All it was doing was beefing up that which is the, you know, the CB radio. But this, this stuff, I mean, is there anything wrong with it? Maybe not, okay? But let's keep in mind that the person buying this stuff, boy, you might want to think about how smart they are with their money. I'll be back with more.
0: Hypercronius is coming.
1: (laughs) Thank you. Thank you so much. Yes, thank you. If you'll excuse me.
0: Uh, you're not Natalia. Who are you? Oh, hello, Mr. Sovereign. Natalia is on another mission. I'm Elizabeth. I'm here to debrief you.
1: I'd love for you to debrief me, but, uh, how did you get in my room?
0: The bellboy let me in.
1: Well, hooray for the bellboy.
0: Tech Roulette it is
1: time for Tech Roulette, where I cover the stories that get sent to me through the various channels available, of course, Twitter, that's at Sovereign Tech, and uh, there's Brian at ZomiaOfflineGames.com, which is the email address for the show. There's BitMessage. If you go to SovereignTech.com, you get links for all the stories we talk about in the show notes, and then you also get all the ways you can communicate with me. All that information is right there. And if you want to send me a encrypted email, uh, of course, there's Anarchy at ProtonMail.ch, and there is the, the PGP key for Brian at uh you know the public key is available on the mit servers so plenty of ways to get in touch with me please i you know fortunately that's never been claimed against me that uh, boy i don't know how to get in touch with you are you fucking kidding me even my telegrams public at sovereign you can find me so anyway <laughs> uh before i get into we're gonna we got a lot to talk about here as, as far as uh quote unquote, Bitcoin goes. Um, but, you know, I just I want to say again that I think a lot of people are going to be like, well, hey, if people can spend $17,000 on a watch, well, good for fucking them, you know? And uh, no, you know, even Kevin Rose said in the article, you know, if Apple, you know, if Apple wanted to be really was interested in that, you know, in in, in pushing, you know, high fashion, they would have made it accessible To And he talked about all the market prices. He would have made that gold watch accessible to every, you know, to more people, not just to people that can hash out $17,000, you know, on a piece of crap technology. So even he, I mean, he just, he came out and said, look, Apple, you're being a bunch of dicks. You know, you, you are really creating a product for others to just rub their goddamn faces, uh, you know, rubbing everybody else's goddamn faces. That's exactly what Apple's doing. Fuck them. Fuck that Apple Watch, God! What a piece of shit. And I mean, I I don't like Android Android Wear either. Okay, make no mistake, Uh, I'm not I'm not playing uh, sides here by any means. I love it, but I love a watch. I've been wearing my Casios for a long time, and even earlier parts of my life. Believe me, I wore some really nice watches. Okay, and there's some interesting technologies, the Citizen Eco Drive. I know, I you know, I, I know the deal. Okay, I'm a fan. But this is just nonsense. So anyway, stuff that isn't nonsense. Let's talk about some good news because we've got some. An interesting idea came out. A couple interesting ideas came out this week uh, or were revealed. But uh, Threshold is a new idea. This again, we're talking Bitcoin here, uh, folks. So one of the things people have talked about, a very popular form of security uh, for Bitcoin is. Multi-sig wallets. OK, multi-sig, of course, is where multiple people to get access or for the wallet to be able to do it for you to do a transaction with that wallet. You have to have at least like, say, two or three people, you know, however many are signed on to the multi-sig wallet, um, you know, to, to allow to approve the action for it to happen. It's a great security feature. It's very interesting. It's uh, it's definitely if you are trying to have a secure wallet, that's like, you know, that's step one to do multi-sig. And there's a copay. Which is a good wallet that does that that actually works in Chrome. Uh, there's you know all kinds of, of of great wallets out there that allow for multisig. So, but one of the problems with multisig is that, and we'll talk about this more in a second. One of the problems is is that it act, it transmits. Essentially, it transmits like all of your, a multisig wallet, you know, transmits all the there's no anonymity. It transmits all the actions that are going on with that wallet with a bunch of different parties. Uh, it's pretty ugly business with that. And so there's been a development called Threshold that is going to try and solve that, you know, from the, essentially keeping the blockchain from seeing everything that's done, uh, you know, with this multisig wallet. And so I thought that was a pretty cool idea to look into. I put a link in the show notes so you can read more about Threshold. Uh, you know, if you want to get into that. So I think that's exciting. But, you know, something that happened this week uh, with just in the past couple of days with Bitcoin was this company, ChainAlysis. And chainalysis.com, okay, is the website where you can read about what they do. And ChainAlysis, what they were doing, well, let me read what ChainAlysis does here. ChainAlysis offers a service that provides financial institutions with the means to Obtain regulatory compliance through real-time analysis of the blockchain. Chain analysis customers get access to an API that allows them to determine which entity a transaction originates from and whether the flow of funds originate from someone they would want to do business with. In other words, it automates the travel rule. So how? one more line, Chainalysis achieves this by doing sophisticated, in-depth, real-time transaction analysis to determine unique entities within the blockchain. How does it do this real-time, in-depth transaction analysis? Well, Stanley will tell you how it's done. It's done by a civil attack. Now, a civil attack is in a peer-to-peer network. A civil attack is where there is one party. This gets done with Tor. This gets done with a lot of peer-to-peer systems, where someone will mimic. They will, you know, de- they will fraud fraudulently, be, you know, be a uh, like a server or a node within this peer-to-peer network. Okay, so they were. What Chainalysis was doing was in various wallets and and, and systems, they were forcing. Those Bitcoin transactions being done from those wallets, from those systems to contact their nodes, chain analysis nodes. And that way they knew what transactions were happening. It was a it's a huge blunder. It, it's, it's a scandal, honestly, uh, going on right now in the Bitcoin space, uh, because a whole lot of anonymity just got lost no matter how hard you were trying. So the civil attack is serious business. And, you know, one of the concerns for me is, in this case, and believe me, we're going to talk about a great solution here in a minute. One of the concerns for me here is, is that, you know, I talk about identity systems all the time. Well, I'm not the only one. Half the fucking blockchain or 90% of the blockchain space talks about identity systems because they can't wait to have them, baby. Sign me up. My name is blah, blah, fucking blah. And I want everybody to know it because I am proud. And that is one of the answers to a Sybil attack, is that you create an authentication system, an ID system that that attaches to, let's be clear on this, that attaches to a real, you know, a real-life identity. Okay? Now, some, and I don't blame them, some get a little conspiratorial with this and say that this is a way to, this Sybil attack is actually a backdoor not not a not a software backdoor but a life backdoor into getting into people's heads that hey we need some accountability systems built into bitcoin now we need some id because otherwise this kind of bullshit's going to happen when they don't realize this, you know i mean and and you know that's the way i think a lot of people are thinking right now is that they want that so i don't blame people for getting kind of conspiratorial about that but that's not the real concern the real concern is that these people that are wanting id systems now wait a minute 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 You had a crack on the anonymity. You're concerned about the crack on anonymity because of a civil attack from chain analysis. And yet what you're wanting is, is a system that doesn't allow for anonymity to solve it. I'm pretty sure I just heard crickets. Are you kidding? Now, there's ways to solve civil attacks that don't require uh, necessarily the use of a, of an attachment of a real life identity. Okay. The, you know, real life identity being that your Bitcoin wallet is attributed or like my Bitcoin wallet would be definitely attributed without question to Brian Sovereign. It'd be somehow, you know, they, they, they code that, that shit in. The other way to do it is to attach, uh, location data, But either way, you have to have some degree of tracking upon the real or upon the person using uh, said, you know, said Bitcoin wallet or said system to solve, you know, the possibility of civil attacks. Okay, you know, even that while that doesn't attach to ident to your real life identity, it still attaches to your real life movements and your real life actions. Okay, which I don't care for. You know, it's 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 an old saying in America. Okay, but. You know, better a dangerous liberty than a safe tyranny. And honestly, I'll take all the civil attacks on planet Earth, bring them on, baby, and we'll solve them one by one. Okay, before I would want any kind of system for Bitcoin that relies upon tracking my movements, that relies upon my Bitcoin wallet being attached to my identity, to who I really am or to anyone else's. It defeats the whole point of the thing. Read the read Satoshi's works. And does it have to stay with Satoshi's, you know, thinkings? Of course it does not have to do that. Okay. But there's a lot of good reasons that he thought out what, you know, what he or she came up with. Okay. And it was, a lot of it was meant to be, you know, a degree of pseudonymity or anonymity or the the possibility for anonymity. And so this is just, this is ugly. The Sybil attack is absolutely ugly. All right. But... I think that there's a really, really good answer out there, and it got highlighted this week, and I want to talk about it. And I'm going to read a story from TechCrunch, of all places, which I'm glad this is in TechCrunch. And it's what you need to know about zero knowledge, because that's part of the real answer to this, is zero knowledge. Let's read it. Anonymity, privacy, how quaint. We live in a world bedecked with ever more cameras, ever more sensors, ever more drones, ever more data, ever fewer things that can be hidden. TLS and Tor can hide your online browsing, true, but realistically, everything important you do, online or off, can easily be audited and tracked. True, you can still send private messages. Signal, red phone, from open whisper systems are the gold standard for secure messaging, and dark matter looks interesting. But if you want to go beyond messaging into transacting, your luck runs out. Consider Bitcoin. It's infamous as the currency of choice for dark markets, but it's also... Uh, Quote, in a sense, the least anonymous money that has ever existed since every transaction is observable by anyone with a Bitcoin account. End quote. To quote economist David Friedman, just asked, uh, just just ask alleged Silk Road Kingpin Ross Ulbricht, who had 700,000 Bitcoin on his laptop directly traceable to Silk Road accounts. You can't ask for payment in unmarked Bitcoin. There's no such thing. Claims that, quote, large European companies may eye Bitcoin as an option for securing their data and keeping it private from the United States, end quote, are currently comical. Sure, you can tumble your Bitcoin payments, i.e. have them mixed and mingled with those of strangers, or perhaps use a service like Dark Wallet, which is essentially a distributed tumbler. But then you have to implicitly trust that service to protect your anonymity and not keep your money. Well, that's the inevitable downside of a single global distributed ledger, right? Anyone can look at it stands to reason. Or so you'd think. But you underestimate today's mathematicians and cryptographers at your peril. Uh, By the way, real quick, kudos to TechCrunch for pointing out that the the Bitcoin blockchain itself is a centralized system. I've said it. David Irvine said it from MadeSafe. A lot of people have said it for for some time now. Uh, Yeah, I've been saying it for over a year, that no, it's not decentralized. The blockchain itself is centralized. Let's read on. I give you ZeroCoin, a way to perform genuinely anonymous cryptocurrency transactions. It was intended as an extension to Bitcoin, but is also fully workable as a separate and independent ZeroCoin cryptocurrency. How is this possible? The concept is elegantly simple. Zero coins are drawn from a collective escrow pool, which is defined, notated, and maintained on the host currency's blockchain, and each coin's transaction history is erased when it emerges from the pool. Transactions are verified by means of zero-knowledge proofs, a mathematical means to prove a truth without having to reveal any further verifying information. Okay, Uh, It's more than just a fascinating concept. A startup called Moneta has gone and implemented the Zerocoin protocol, along with other uh, blockchain improvements. Uh, Their Genesis block, the launch of their blockchain, is scheduled for the next few months. Boy, you want to keep a lookout for that. Meanwhile, the Zerocoin people have expanded their initial proposal into an even more anonymized protocol called Zerocash. Zerocash is not entirely trustless. It has to be initially set up by a trusted entity. Thereafter, though, its blockchain would allow transactions that did not contain any public information about their sender or receiver or amount. But all of these things can still be verified using zero-knowledge proofs. Indeed, quote, such proofs are less than 300 bytes long and can be verified in only a few milliseconds, end quote. They are memorably known as ZK-SNARKs for Zero-Knowledge Succinct Non-Interactive Arguments of Knowledge. I get a boner reading that. I mean it. God damn, I love it. So, and that's one of the original arguments. Zero coin, you know, Golden Stallion just butting in here for a second. Zero coin is not a new technology. This is something that Matthew Green uh, from John Hopkins talked about doing, John Hopkins University, that is, talked about, you know, implementing a couple of years ago, I think. And uh, the reason one of the reasons that it was kind of, you know, people are like, no, we don't want to do this is because doing the zero knowledge proofs or the the Zeke snarks or however they want to pronounce that required uh, a good chunk of time and a good chunk of data. Both of those uh, with zero cash. Now, both of those uh, problems have been pretty much solved. OK, uh, you know, then that's even saying that some <laughs> it's so funny because that that's even saying that. The slowness of the network is necessarily a problem. Yes, sure, it's fine. It's a problem for the everyday person that doesn't give a rat's fucking ass about having privacy or anonymity and they use Apple, you know, Apple Pay in the first place. It's not a problem for me. I don't mind having a nice little chat with whoever the hell I'm buying stuff from. Reading on. But let's not get too excited. Let's throw a little cold water on these fever dreams. There are hundreds of would-be Bitcoin successors out there, and everyone has failed to supplant the king of the heap. Bitcoin's tech may seem increasingly obsolete only five years in, but its network effects seem to make it unassailable. Despite all the catcalls and lamentations of the last year, a single Bitcoin is still worth more than $200. That is beyond remarkable. Like Wikipedia, Bitcoin may not work in theory, but it's nearly unstoppable in practice, and no other cryptocurrency will topple it from its perch anytime soon. That's why pegged sidechains are important. I've written about them before. Basically, there's a way to exchange Bitcoin's uh, across an interwoven braid of many blockchains and thus extend the protocol without having to somehow overthrow uh, bitcoin's primacy. And we've talked about that before with blockstream that that they're coming up with that. Now right on here. Uh, to my mind, zerocoin and zero cash are the low-hanging fruit of sidechains. Just transfer your bitcoin to a sidechain that implements one of those protocols and voila, instant bitcoin anonymity. You can send or receive money while maintaining mathematically perfect privacy. Will this have practical and regulatory repercussions? You bet it will. Will it always be a good thing? Uh, Realistically, probably not. But in a world creeping towards uh, becoming the panopticon of things, one camera enabled remote control device at a time, anything that protects privacy is a good thing. Three cheers for zero knowledge. Although even that will just be a first step. I'll leave the last word to Moneta, Moneta co-founder, Gary Lee. Quote, The vision of the Moneta project is to help significantly advance Bitcoin technology as a side chain. As a side chain, we want to help people realize that it's possible to make Bitcoin lightning fast far more private, and far more scalable. For example, people often think that Bitcoin is limited to seven transactions per second and can never compete with Visa. With some changes to the protocol, we can increase that number 100-fold. Also, with increased scalability comes decreased transaction fees. Think of all the new marketplaces and behaviors that can arise if we can decrease Bitcoin's transaction fees from the magnitude of cents to the magnitude of hundreds of a cent. We hope to convey that Bitcoin's underlying protocol can, in fact, be advanced significantly, not just marginal improvements, but 10x or 100x improvements. Now, zero knowledge proofs is what, excite, is what excites me. This is good news. The fact that this is possible is a great, great thing. Now, there's two, there's two interesting points to bring up here, though, at least two. One is, all right, I, I have to admit, now, Matthew Green who is the developer of zero coin slash zero cash and his team at John Hopkins university. These guys are not anarchists. Uh, and so, you know, d- go however you want to trust them, trust them. This is re- This is all pretty much open source. Okay. And that leads to our second point, which is that this doesn't have to be used with Bitcoin. It could be like the article stated. It could be a completely separate coin. And I think that's the more interesting application is let's just make a completely separate coin. OK, and the reasons for that, first off, are that, you know, with with side chains, I still haven't heard the great argument for these. I still haven't heard, like, how are you going to secure the systems between, you know, uh, the the main blockchain and a side chain? No one's come up with that answer yet. I want to hear that before I get all hot and bothered about it. OK, because let's say zero coin or zero cash was a side chain. If that side chain's not secure, then you've got we you know, where the Bitcoin goes into the zero cash side chain and then where it comes out as problems, as points of failure for the entire purpose of zero cash, which is anonymity and privacy. Two separate things, of course. All right. So that I I don't dig that now. So what would I like? Well, I would love for this to get implemented into an altcoin of some kind. Hell, Let's completely revamp Litecoin. It's already got some value and just toss in all these zero coin features. Boy, that would make Litecoin viable in a heartbeat, wouldn't it? But why didn't that happen? Why? In fact, like I said, this technology has been around for a couple of years. Zero coin and zero cash. Why hasn't anybody implemented it? Because perhaps the people, those that want, you know, those that, that have a lot of the real power, not necessarily the people, but those that have a lot of the real power in the Bitcoin space don't want it. They don't want anonymity. They don't want privacy involved. They want this all to be open. They want regulation to fit in. You know, they want to be able to have regulatory compliance and all this stuff, which zero coin would talk to- with zero knowledge proofs anyway would toss right out the door. Don't believe me? You don't believe me that people want that? Fine, let me direct you to another website digitalcurrencycouncil.com. This is set up by none other than one of Wall Street's finest, Barry Silbert. Because, you know, we want Wall Street involved in Bitcoin, don't we? And this whole thing is about certifying you if you go through their courses to, let's see, what, what can you get? If you have a, a certification from the DCC, if you have a license, if you have, you know, bullshit, essentially, from the DCC, what do you get? Well, this is going to be great for finance financial professionals. This is right from their website. Uh, advise your clients on how digital currency fits into their investment portfolios. Or attorneys, counselor clients on legal and regulatory matters related to digital currencies. Accountants, this is all that this is for. Manage the tax and reporting obligations of digital currency transactions. Taxing, legal, regulatory, read all those words. All those words are gigantic red flags for the whole goddamn community, or at least they should have been. And if they're not, fuck them, leave Bitcoin. Regulatory matters. In fact, you know what? If a business, however, whatever size that business is, if a business should only trust people that has certification from the DCC, then the democratization of money that supposedly Bitcoin is, is a load of shit. It's a crock. No, it's not. If it still requires some asshat from Wall Street to tell me how to use it. I thought we were supposed to be making Bitcoin simpler. Now it looks like it got a whole hell of a lot more complex. You kidding? So, end of the day, guess what? We have the technology that does pretty much everything I wanted it to do. Zero-proof knowledge. We have zero coin, zero cash. The ship's open source. It can get implemented into any altcoin. could be its own altcoin. Good. Do it. Let's roll with it. And, you know, drug dealers, hookers, all my friends, jump on board, baby. Because we got us a real piece of money right now. It's a lot, you know, I, I, it's, it's propaganda. It's propaganda that Bitcoin is somehow the end all be all of money and that that's where we should put all of our efforts. Bullshit. That's the antithesis of growth. We can do better. In fact, one of my common arguments for cash, and I've said this before on Sovereign Tech, why cash is still King is because it's completely anonymous, zero cash, Nice job. I love the fact that now they use the word zero cash because it's highlighting the fact that this stuff is anonymous. In fact, I've heard people, very smart people in the Bitcoin space say the only thing that could ever unseat Bitcoin is something that was more anonymous. Well, here it is. And we can use it. We can get on top of it, start implementing it into things that might even already have a network of some kind. Not side chains.
0: Let's do it. Time now for 90 Seconds on Sex with Dr. Paul.
2: The Food and Drug Administration wisely wants to see the Plan B version of emergency contraception made available over-the-counter. Unfortunately, the FDA's decision has been overruled. I can't tell you how wrong this is, especially because it's so important to have convenient 24-hour-a-day access to Plan B so you can take it as soon as possible after having unprotected intercourse. Plan B works by stopping an egg from leaving the ovary. Once an egg leaves the ovary, Plan B is no longer able to prevent pregnancy. Once an egg leaves the ovary, Plan B won't stop it from being fertilized and it won't stop it from implanting in the womb. Study after study have shown that Plan B does not cause an abortion. If you're a condom broke or you forgot to use contraception, don't say to yourselves, We'll just get it in the morning. Put your pants on and run to the nearest drugstore that has Plan B. You're in a race against time because a woman needs to take Plan B before she ovulates. As for side effects, Plan B is just an extra dose of a certain kind of birth control pill. For most women, the worst side effects are nausea, headache, or dizziness. For helpful links on emergency contraception, visit us on our website
0: for more visit 90secondsonsex.com I just received an encrypted message from Decentral with your next mission and it looks like I'm coming along
1: well Elizabeth I wouldn't have it any other way you're clearly good at staying on top of things
0: it helps when one's partner is very skilled
1: no no we can have more fun later what does the
0: message say Important Messages.
1: Woo yeah. Nobody said this anarchy thing was for the thinnest skin, that's for sure. Mm, all right. <laughs> you know, someone asked me about that 90 Seconds on Sex segment that I play every, a new one that I play every episode. Uh, and I'll just reiterate again. Uh, no, I, I they're not a sponsor. They don't, uh, you know, I, I don't actually... I'd love to get more donations. I, I don't get really any money for doing Sovereign Tech at all. Uh, so, but I just put that in there. One is it lets me cool off sometimes. <laughs> the other is is that you know I love sex. It, it's it's arguably my favorite thing to do. And you know to to make sure that it gets highlighted in some fashion on a project of mine, uh, I really you know i i want that to uh, to be you know i want that there and so it kind of it guarantees that sex is going to get talked about in sovereign tech whether or not i have a story that gets to it which i haven't done a good sex story in a while i don't think uh so maybe i need to remedy that but anyway that that's the deal uh behind you know behind the 90 seconds on sex thing and i'll eventually i'll run out of new episodes but there's there's tons there's hundreds of them um and then i'll just probably just start from the beginning again so they'll always be there uh if i have anything to say about it But anyway, let's get into our. This is, of course, the time important messages where you can get in touch with me through Bitmessage, Telegram, uh, Anarchy at Protonmail.ch. You can use Protonmail, or of course, the email address Brian at ZomiOfflineGames.com. There's also Google Plus, though apparently Google Plus really its death knell is getting signed. I guess David Horowitz is getting put in charge there, and they are separating streams and photos from the overall product. So maybe Google Plus. Isn't necessarily the, the best option. Though I'm on Hangouts. I mean, there, there's tons of ways to get in touch with the show. Uh, Twitter, you take your pick. So anyway, um, let let's uh, let's get into some of these. And some of these are wrapped up this week. There was uh, you know, speaking of a little bit of Bitcoin news, apparently, uTorrent there there was a version of uTorrent that had a little Bitcoin miner software uh, slipped in, and it was just just bogging down machines endlessly. So now I don't recommend ever, I've never recommended, in fact, using BitTorrent or using UTorrent uh, for your torrenting needs uh, on Sovereign Tech. So a lot of people ask me about it. What's a good solution? Well, I'll give you a couple. Okay. Uh, so we have. First off is Deluge, D-E-L-U-G-E. I put a link in the show notes if you want to find it. And this is cross-platform as far as Linux, Mac, and Windows. It works on all of those. Deluge is a great option. Uh, The best part about Deluge is it has extensions, kind of like your web browser does, that allows you to do all kinds of wild things. Get email notifications when a torrent's done. I mean, there's a whole slew. I mean, that's just the tip of the iceberg. Of what it can do, uh, but there's quite a few, and it's totally open source. It's you know it doesn't have any of the bullshit ads that uTorrent has. Uh, it's a really great option. and It's the one I generally recommend. The one I recommended before Deluge though was qBitTorrent, and qBitTorrent is nice because that is also cross-platform. But it has a couple of interesting options. One is is that if you use a portable apps, as in portableapps.com drive. Uh, which I recommend. I, I, I use one myself. Uh, Qubit Torrent is available in the Portable Apps app directory, and it's also available in the F-Droid store. So if you are doing a dark Android setup, QubitTorrent Torrent is your Cadillac of torrenting. So those two options are great. Totally open source. I don't, especially CubitTorrent, Torrent, maybe even more than Deluge, because Deluge is pretty popular. Uh, you know, I don't see anybody slipping in any kind of, uh, you know, nasty software, uh, with those. So there might be some trade-off of features, but as far as what people do with torrenting, I mean, there's, you know, (laughs) it's a, it's a matter of taste which one works best for you, you know, which one has the features that you like. But they keep improving all the time, too. Qubit Torrent is heavily developed, and so is Deluge. Uh, so, you know, look into those if you're looking for an alternative with that. Another question I got this week as far as, you know, what's a good alternative for TrueCrypt? Because TrueCrypt has, you know, Steve Gibson would say TrueCrypt is fine as long as you use, like, version 7.2, the old version, which he's hosting at grc.com. Um, but if you want something that, you know, you might want to feel a little more secure about, if you don't want to, you know, use TrueCrypt, I recommend VeraCrypt, V-E-R-A uh Crypt, and link in the show notes for that as well. VeraCrypt does you know your whole drive encryption, your your you know, your external drive encryption, all the nice things that you used TrueCrypt for, VeraCrypt can do. And uh supposedly TrueCrypt, there's been some good news about it that that the initial security audit of TrueCrypt has come up green. You know, everything's Okay, but that's just the initial one. Uh, it's not an in-depth audit. Uh, boy, I was trying to think of that word earlier when I was talking about other stuff during uh, random access. But anyway, uh, so do check out Veracrypt. And it is cross-platform, you know, works very well with Linux, OS X, and Windows. Uh, it even works with free BSD really well, which isn't a shock because BSD has a uh, Linux compatibility layer. So, in fact, sometimes <laughs> Linux software works better in BSD than it does in Linux. Um, but anyway, that that's what I recommend is, is VeraCrypt. That's the one that I use for my Windows machine. So you know you can you can check that out. There's Discryptor. There's a couple others, uh, but but VeraCrypt is really the the top of the heap for me. So uh, let's see. Actually, this is th- that does that question dovetails nicely into uh, a lot of people asked me. I had said either last week or the week before I had mentioned about you know getting past the hardware. And people were like, what what the hell do you mean getting past the hardware? And uh, some other good news that came out this week is that uh, Signal 2.0 from Open Whisper Systems, which actually got highlighted in that zero Cash article we read in the last segment, uh, is available for iOS. And this is where I think that the iPhone has become incredibly viable because I think Android, you know, smartphones, any way you slice it. And this is this is what I mean about getting past the hardware uh, smartphones, not tablets, per se, but smartphones are, you know, just insecure platforms straight up. And the only way you can really solve it, in my opinion, maybe Blackphone will figure out how to solve it, or there's the Quasar 4 and 5 and a couple of like the Ninja Phone and stuff like that uh, from Boeing or whatever. But, uh, you know, the only way you can solve it is by having software on top that somehow... Is just really, really secure. Now, Open Whisper systems are like, like that article said, the gold standard. They are the best. Um, and so Signal did come out for, for iOS um, and Signal 2.0, and that is a really great solution. Uh, there's a couple shortcuts in there. Where I think they had to do a couple things server side, but by and large, this is really exciting. And if you're using iOS, you want this. Um, the other interesting point, actually, with Open Whisper systems, as far as you know, software encryption goes, is that TechSecure will no longer be encrypting SMS messages. Uh, so that also, to me, highlights how you know smartphones just aren't secure. And they admitted that you know trying to encrypt SMS messages was just this incredible pain in the ass uh, to do. And so with that being the case, if software is where any of this encryption can really get solved, it by and large doesn't matter what platform you're using Uh, by and large. okay. now. One can get into the issue of, hey, what about the keyboard? The You know, the Google keyboard could be logging everything I do. The Apple keyboard could be logging everything I do. Well, fortunately, it's another area where iOS might be all right because they are allowing for other keyboards to be implemented. Um, who knows? You, you know what? That depends how far you want to go with this. And I and, you know, believe me, I I don't knock people for for being You know, paranoid. Okay, (laughs) I hope I proved that by now. So, you know, but that's the thing is that software is really the solution. So the idea of getting past the hardware is that, yeah, I think, you know, for to to bring in this, you know, very anonymous and and private solutions to thwart, uh, you know, various alphabet soup organizations like GCHQ, uh, the NSA and whoever else. Uh, it looks like that battle is going to largely be won software-wise. Hardware-wise, I mean, the best thing we've got—I mentioned it every show—is the LibraRoot X200, which is a revamped ThinkPad that is, you know, all the all the firmwares backwards engineered on it and everything. I mean, that's how far this stuff has to go. So, software seems to be the, you know, as far as getting ease of use and quick, uh, you know, quick out, outline, you know, you know, quick uh, deployment, it's going to be on the software end. Uh, You know, so that's what I'm saying about getting past. Maybe we need to get past the hardware. Uh, And, you know, I mean, something else like you think of Tails, you know, uh, as Tails, the operating system. You know, you load that onto a USB drive and maybe that's what we'll do is just everybody will have their own OS. This is kind of what Portable Apps does. uh, PortableApps.com where it's it's kind of your own OS and you just do everything in there and then you walk away from the machine. And there's a lot of other interesting implications for this, too. Where there's a new laptop from MSI, uh, and there's another laptop out there that's doing this too, that come with uh, the really thin, you know, like 15-inch gaming laptops. I think it's the Ghost 60 or something like that. And it comes with a gaming dock. And what this gaming dock allows it to do is it will, it, it allows the, it's, it's just like a dock that a lot of laptops use that adds on ports or whatever. But this one, you, you plug in your, you know, you attach your laptop to it. And this dock has, you know, like a surround sound, you know, soundbar speaker on it. And it has an NVIDIA GTX 960 built into it. So it has a more powerful video card and it will allow the laptop to access that. And I thought that was really interesting. I don't think people really appreciated just how how forward thinking this is as to where you could just have, you know, emplacements. Uh, all over the place where it has a lot of the heavy duty hardware that everybody could kind of share, but everything you do gets done on maybe your pocket, hard- some kind of pocket form of hardware or off of a USB drive or something like that. Uh, maybe that's a real solution as to where, you know, you don't necessarily have your own machine, but any machine you interact with, you can turn into, uh, you know, your own. In a very real sense, and so I think that's an interesting development. That's kind of what I meant about that. I'm still formulating a lot of what I mean about uh, getting past the hardware because I still want to see a lot more open source hardware getting developed, which is starting to happen. But boy, it's it's an area that's that's ripe uh, for for some entrepreneurship, I think. Uh, but that, that's that's kind of what I what I had in mind. So I hope I explained that that decently well. I just wanted to kind of give you a heads up and not leave you hanging uh, there. So let's see. Uh, what do you think is the I want to get through a lot of these questions. I have tons. Um, what do you think is the real reason behind the push for wearables? Well, it's good because we were talking about wearables uh, earlier in the show. And honestly, I think the real push for wearables, the real reason, because we can't really make sense of you know why this is. I mean, you know. Kevin Rose made a great point of why of, you know, why a Rolex is valued so highly. You know, he talked about the craftsmanship and all that stuff. And like I said, you don't have to be, you know, a rich asshole. OK, to to appreciate that, because Etsy is clear case that no matter what realm you are in economic, you know, in the in the the economic strata. OK, people want good handmade shit. So he made that great case for that. Um, so, you know, but but why this time? Why are these what's the deal with these wearables? OK, is the point. Let's let's just get right into that. And I don't think it is any kind of like status symbol nonsense like we were just kind of describing. I don't think it has anything to do with that. I think it all comes down to biometric marketing. And that's a real word. Okay, And I'm an advertising exec. I know I, I you know, I get the I get newsletters that talk about all this stuff. And as soon as I heard about biometric marketing, I was like, ah, this is why Android Wear is a big deal. This is why the Apple Watch is a big deal because they want to be able to detect how you literally how you're feeling, you know, what's your blood pressure, all this stuff, so that they can feed you bullshit, you know, on your watch or on your smartphone or even on your computer because it's all cross platform, right? Cortana is going all the way across. Okay, Uh, so they can feed you ads or feed you what you need to see. And the scary part with that, let's let's not kid ourselves. The scary part with that is Facebook's behavioral modifications. Right. Remember how they were messing with some odd 750,000 people, I think it was, and, you know, getting them, trying to get them depressed and, and just messing with their heads. Uh, yeah. Biometric mar- marketing is, you know, marketing alone is often scary enough. Okay. But, but biometric marketing uh, is, is, you know, to the nth degree. Uh, I mean, it it really, really is. In fact, that that reminds me with biometric marketing, like, you know, talking about how it could be controlling. There's a really famous video where a person goes to order a pizza. This is in the future. A person goes to order a pizza and the person taking the order for the pizza over the computer says, oh, well, I noticed you didn't get your run in today. So you don't you really can't afford to take in these calories and it restricted him from getting the pizza. So, I mean, let alone the fact that, it, you know, it'll push stuff to buy for you to buy on you. But at the same time, it has that that real potential uh, to be kind of controlling. OK, so keep that in mind. I think that's really what wearables is all about. What a lot of this is about is biometric marketing. So uh, let's see another technology. Why aren't there flying cars? This is a I love this question. I don't know if I've ever done it before, but it's gotten asked again. And so good. I get to break into it. The reason that there aren't flying cars is not that the technology does not exist. It does exist. There could be flying cars right now. The reason is yes, it's government, that's the answer, but let's be a little more specific. The reason is is borders. What's to stop a flying car from going into Mexico? It's all about borders. So anybody, listen to me, anybody that complains to you that there aren't flying cars and yet they want to close down the borders because they're afraid of some, quote unquote, dirty Mexicans. They're not dirty. OK, uh, coming over. They're the problem. They're the entire reason we don't have flying cars is because of this whole border you know, protection bullshit. OK, in my opinion, that is the entire reason uh, for that. So I mean, and you, when you read the FF, FAA regulations on borders, I mean, because the FAA would regulate flying cars even if the government allowed for them, you can see really quickly why they will never but take off. So that that's the whole deal behind that. Why I think there aren't flying cars. It all has to do with this this, this ridiculous notion of invisible lines on a map. Uh, Hypercronius two got a or <laughs> I kind of gave that away in, in shortening the email there. Uh, someone asked, "Will there be a Hypercronius 2? Now, I think I answered this previously, but I want to I want to go ahead and touch on it now. Uh, yes, as soon as Hypercronius is out, and we've got that date of April fifth uh, ready to go, as soon as Hypercronius is out, I will pretty much begin development on Hypercronius Two. And keep in mind that yes, I do plan on this being a long series of games. Um, it, you know, it, and it's it's a interweaving, interlocking story. The second game will be far more. The first game is definitely, you know, me going kind of for the hook. Uh, It's not a complex game. It's not necessarily a difficult game by a lot of standards of gaming. Uh, The second game will take everything up to 11. Okay, I'm not saying I'm going to make the game that that difficult because the importance for me is getting the story across. I love to get out a great story. Okay, and gaming is just it may be the greatest medium for that ever, more so than even television. Okay, uh, so you know, but but I just want you to know that Hypercronius two definitely it's going to happen. There's there's no question about it. Even if Hypercronius one doesn't sell well, okay, Hypercronius two is going to be a thing. There's going to be three, a four, a five. If I have to make ten of them until I suddenly you know start breaking money, then fine. Okay, but he. he You know, this is me wanting to tell a great story. And so that, that will happen and it will definitely be a, you know, bigger world, bigger, everything. Um, in fact, if you want to see recently on social media, I have been posting pictures from Hypercronius. I I posted some screenshots as well as, uh, I might have leaked some of the full motion video from it, but <laughs> anyway, but that's all. I haven't really leaked much in the way of story, uh, though I did for a second. I think I made one little tweet that actually gave the opening line. So you'd have to look for that. Uh, but anyway, uh, that, that's that's happening. Things are going along very nicely with Hypercronius. Uh, but yes, there will be nonstop with that. But speaking of games, OK, I do. I have tons of keys people you know listeners have given me keys uh for steam games i will be doing the uh the giveaways uh for various games that i've done in the past i've been very bad about uh you know very inconsistent about getting those out there but i will start doing the game contests again on sovereign tech i know i've said that a couple times but i really will it's just hyper is taking so much of my time uh you know that that I can't really get that all set up and spend time on that sort of thing. So anyway, I'll be back with more. This is Sovereign Tech.
3: Are you sick of government lackeys who say you didn't build that? Are you tired of elitists like Barack Obama and Al Gore taking credit for the web while trying to take over the web? Are you disgusted by experts whose concept of the Internet is that it's a series of tubes? Take back the free market of computing by encouraging software developers to adopt the BIPCOT no-gov license. The BIPCOT no-gov license allows any use or modification except by governments. Go to BIPCOT.org. That's Bravo, India, Papa, Charlie, Oscar, Tango, Do
0: you still have it?
1: I got it right here. How does this affect System D?
0: I don't know. The message just said it was important.
1: Uh, I think we need to find out more about this. Tool of the Week.
0: It is time
1: for Tool of the Week, where I talk about maybe a, a piece of hardware, piece of software, a website, something like that, or even some kind of tool, literal tool, uh, that can be used, you know, th- that's open for you to use and can help you with, you know, your your privacy, pretty much with protecting, you know, your proverbial or not proverbial, but your what many would equate to rights <laughs> so uh as well as something that sometimes it's just fun right uh, but this is definitely something that that is really really useful as far as gaining back some privacy and anonymity and this actually came from uh, a great listener of the show and, and a good friend uh, and it's a uh, to tutanota.de so the .de is a clearer uh you know, indication that this is from Germany and uh, boy, talk about people that <laughs> talk, about, talk about a country that is interested in reclaiming some privacy based upon what the NSA and JCHQ did to Merkel. Right. Uh, Tutanota is a kind of like whiteout.io, kind of like uh, ProtonMail.ch, where it is a, a nice, simple PGP solution, uh, web based Solution at that. Uh, and this is comparable to whiteout.io where it allows for it to you know, of course, it's totally open source and it's free, you know, in all those ways. But it has an iOS app uh, and it has a uh, an Android app. OK, so. That's that was the nice thing about Whiteout.io and why I pushed really hard for that uh, was because it had apps for you know for a lot of different uh, platforms and I thought that that was really cool. So this is an entirely web based solution, uh, you know, other than the app, but even then that might just be a skin of sorts. I, I haven't totally looked at the at the app yet, but it's it's a great great implementation. Uh, and they are going to come out with a, a Tutanota for business, which will allow you. To have, you know, real easy PGP implementation and it is easy. They did, a they've done the best job I've seen so far. They did better than whiteout.io and they don't have any of the message amount or, you know, the space limitations that ProtonMail has. Um, you know, they will have one for business where you can actually use your own domain to create uh, a key, you know, and that, that will probably cost, I imagine. Um, but you know, otherwise, you know, the standard, if you just want to get a, a tutanota.de email address, uh, that's totally free and always will be. So good for them. Um, I It does have Outlook, uh, like an like Outlook implementation. Uh, and I think that's pretty cool that it can work with Outlook. That's going to make it, you know, because actually, I think WinGPG doesn't even work well with the newest version of Outlook. And it probably won't work with the newest, newest version that I think will be out next year. Uh, so, you know, that's kind of out of there. So what's a good solution to have? Well, uh, two uh, to nota and it works, it works really well. PGP is so important. It's really, as far as encryption goes, it's the only thing that I have where, where I probably, probably, you know, bet my life on it. If, if it was necessary, you know, uh, I mean, <laughs> I don't know necessarily to it's still in beta. Okay. Uh, but, PGP you know good solid PGP uh implementation and setup uh is about as good as we can get is my point okay and so it's really important to use it even if the setup is can be a little clunky like i've noticed whiteout.io has been a little clunky i haven't been able the reason i use whiteout.io still and i haven't switched over to tudenote yet is because whiteout.io does work with any domain but Honestly, that's been buggy on that recently. I can't get the app to work with the Zomi Offline Games uh, account. Uh, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a real problem for me, <laughs> admittedly. So uh, nota hopefully would be a solution for that. But the point being is that even if it is clunky, getting people used to the idea of encrypting their emails, of encrypting what they send, you know, what information they send around is just as important as to, you know, how good the, the implementation is. Okay. Because if people could get used to it, I mean, then it becomes a habit and then it becomes order of the day. And then people think to themselves, well, why wouldn't it be this way? You know, as to where more they're tacitly uh, accepting that, well, the NSA has got to keep an eye on us. Now let's change gears on that. And so I love it when these, when these really easy setups of great encryption uh, get released. I don't care where they come from. Okay. uh, It's an exciting thing. It's something that needs to happen more and I know will happen more. OK, and so PGP, you know, emails getting pretty well rounded out, as you know, as far as a federated system, as far as being able to encrypt, maybe something better will come along. Maybe Bitmessage or a Bitmessage uh, successor will improve this whole situation and come up with a really good peer to peer, you know, communic- encrypted communication system. But as it stands, email is pretty powerful. And the fact that it can do a lot of this stuff uh, like to allows it to do. That's awesome. You know, can't recommend using that more. And like I said, email encryption, PGP encryption or GPG encryption right now is about the most trustworthy thing I can recommend. I'm not saying do anything nuts. I'm not saying anything of the sort. You know, the best encryption is for you to have real life anonymity mixed in with your digital anonymity. OK, but, you know, as far as like quick and easy, fast and dirty. Yeah. Yeah. You use one of these solutions, you know, and Tutanota is, is a great addition to Proton Mail to white out. Uh, you take your pick. So I love it, and thank you, listener, for bringing it to my attention. Uh, I'll be back with more. This is Sovereign Tech.
3: Hey, this is Michael Dean from the Freedom Fiends radio show. I've been working with computer programmer Derek Slopey to create Fiend Phone. I'm using Fiend Phone right now to talk with and record one of my co hosts in real time. Take it, Davi.
2: Hey, this is Davi Barker, and I'm a thousand miles away from Michael, but we sound like we're in the
3: same room. We sure do, Davi. So Davi, please tell the nice people more about Fiendphone.
2: Fiendphone is free, open-source software that opens up a global world of possibilities for collaborative, high-quality remote voice media production, and I'm digging it.
3: People can try the Windows beta version of Fiendphone right now at Fiendphone.com, but we're also raising money to vastly improve Fiendphone and vastly improve independent talk media worldwide.
2: So go to Fiendphone.com to help out. Who will build the audio roads? We will, with your help.
3: That's Fiendphone.com. F E E N P H O N E.com. Foxtrot Echo Echo November phone.com.
2: Fiendphone. I never knew remote audio could be this good.
0: We're never going to make it out alive if those blockchain drones get off the ground.
1: I can handle that. You just find us another ride. Get on. Nice moves. When did you learn that?
0: On with you. No guns, no killing. Are the drones taken care of?
1: They are now. Nothing works better than a quick hack. Let's get going.
0: Back, sir. It is time
1: for HackSec, where we talk about hackers and security issues. And, uh, boy, have we got some security issues to talk about this week. Uh, in fact, it's uh, this week's almost, it's like all Apple all the time, right? <laughs> Not entirely, but I've got a couple stories that I want to uh, dig into here, uh, both having to do with the CIA. And this first one is from The Verge, and it's in response to a new Snowden release. And it's Apple targeted by CIA spies for years, say new Snowden documents. So reading on a new report by The Intercept says that researchers working for the CIA have been involved in a multi-year sustained effort to crack Apple security measures on iPhones and iPads Uh, documents provided by Former NSA contractor Edward Snowden detail a number of initiatives, including an attempt to crack encryption keys implanted into Apple's mobile processor and a method compromising Xcode, the Apple tool used to create the vast majority of iOS apps. Although the report doesn't uh, include details of any successful operations against Apple, it highlights the ongoing battle between national security agencies and technology companies, as well as the hypocrisy of the U.S. government. It was only in March this year that President Barack Obama criticized China for its plan for its plans, uh, forcing tech companies to install security backdoors for government surveillance. Instead, as The Intercept notes, China is only following America's lead. Quote, if U.S. products are okay to target, that's news to me. End quote. Matthew Green, uh, a cryptography expert at John Hopkins University Information Security, told The Intercept. Uh, Matthew Green is also the guy that created what we were talking about earlier. Zero cash. How apropos. Quote, tearing apart the products of U.S. manufacturers and potentially putting backdoors and software distributed by unknowing developers all seems to be going a bit beyond targeting bad guys. It may be a means to an end, but it's a hell of a means. End quote. I think that's about about the best way I've ever heard that put. Uh, U.S. researchers' efforts to target Apple's products, as well as those from competitors like Microsoft, were presented at a secret annual CIA-sponsored conference known as the Jamboree. In a presentation from 2012, researchers from Sandia Labs gave a talk titled, Straw Horse, Attacking the Mac OS and iOS Software Development. In it, they showed how a compromised version of Xcode would allow spies to siphon off iPhone and iPad data, create remote backdoors on connected Mac computers, and disable core security features on Apple devices. It's not clear how spy agencies would get developers to use the compromised version of the software, however. A separate presentation showed how a modified OSX updater could be used to install key loggers on Mac computers. Another from 2011 discussed different methods that could be used to hack Apple's group ID, one of the two encryption keys that Apple places on its mobile devices. One method involves studying the electromagnetic emissions of the GID to extract the encryption key, while another focused on a method to physically extract the GID key, according to leaked presentation notes. The documents do not specify how successful or not these methods have been, nor do they give any examples of specific hacks carried out by the CIA and other U.S. intelligence agencies. Quote, Spy is going to spy. Stephen Bullivan, a computer science professor at Columbia University and former chief technologies, technologist for the FTC, told The Intercept, quote, I'm never surprised by what intelligence agencies do to get information. They're going to go where the info is, and as it moves, they'll adjust their tactics. Their attitude is basically amoral. Whatever works is okay. End quote. So, yeah, this, in fact, this story didn't go into a lot of depth on the matter, but this X code. Uh, was essentially or this this faux Xcode, this false Xcode was designed to where it would actually like it would spread like it would it would replicate itself. I mean, it was a really, really huge issue. And, you know, it's about the worst thing that could go wrong is the basis for all of your apps, which is Xcode, you know, would would be compromised to where it would constantly send data, uh, you know, back to, to home base, whether that home base is Apple or the NSA. So, you know, and there's not a whole lot of information whether or not that's been totally successful um but this i mean this is a really really bad bad deal and and please, if you think that they didn't try the same shit on android you're you're kidding yourself, okay <laughs> I mean you really are even the open source nature of it i I don't think it's an issue, so I mean, it raises a lot of question: was Apple complicit in the matter uh, I think most would hope not, but you know. Who knows? Uh, I mean, Apple likes to claim that they don't need your information, uh, you know, they that they make plenty of money off of the hardware. But, I mean, do they have to play ball with the governments? Well, you know, they had their Warren Canary, and I believe that Warren Canary was taken down, so it raises the question. Um, I do take issue with the fact this one, you know, the things relative to smartphones, maybe those should have been released first. I don't, I, you know, I understand the slow release that happens because it makes Whatever, you know, the NSA or GCHQ claims, it makes it irrelevant because they'll say, well, we never did this, though. And then a new stone release will come out and say, yes, you did. <laughs> you know, and I really do wish, though, that that this kind of information should have come out two years ago or, you know, a year ago, however long ago that was. This information should have been out really, really fast because, I mean, this is underpinning like everything on a smartphone. You know, uh, I mean, that's a real, real problem. And it highlights more. Uh, The fact that, again, smartphones are really not very secure systems. Now, this would also uh, affect tablets. Um, But then, you know, in that case, you want to go with the most open source system you can find and hope that people look for it. I mean, now this information's out, I think people will be looking, uh, even developers will be looking into, hey, you know, what other, you know, mimicked versions of underlying code have been infected. So I'm glad it's out there, but this really should have been released a whole hell of a lot earlier. Um, The other story I want to bring up, and actually a listener uh, telegrammed me the... The PDF from the Wall Street Journal because you have to get a paid subscription. I don't have that, uh, and the listener did, and so thank you so much for that. Uh, and that was more to do with the CIA, which uh, the CIA gave Justice Department secret phone scanning technology. Now I think we might have previously, you know, touched on this before, but I think it creates a very complete picture of just how you know screwed uh, you know smartphones are in many ways. So let's read a little bit of this. Uh, The Central Intelligence Agency played a crucial role in helping the Justice Department develop technology that scans data from thousands of U.S. cell phones, part of a little-known high-tech alliance between the spy agency and domestic law enforcement, according to people familiar with the work. Together, the CIA and the U.S. Marshals Service, an agency of the Justice Department, developed technology to locate specific cell phones in the U.S. through an airborne device that mimics a cell phone tower. These people said, uh, you these people said today, the Justice Department program, whose existence was first reported by the Wall Street Journal last year, is used to hunt criminal suspects. The same technology is is used to hunt terror suspects and intelligence targets overseas. The people said Uh, the Justice Department program operates specifically equipped planes that fly from five U.S. cities with a flying range covering most of the U.S. population. Planes are equipped with devices. Some past versions were dubbed as dirt boxes by law enforcement officials which tricks cell phones into reporting their unique registration information. In uh, in that way, the surveillance system briefly identifies large numbers of cell phones belonging to citizens unrelated to the search. The practice can also be briefly interfere with the ability to make calls. Uh, Some law enforcement officials, however, are concerned the aerial surveillance of cell phone signals inappropriately mixes traditional mixes together traditional police work with the tactics and technology of overseas spy work that is constrained by far by by fewer rules. Civil liberties groups say the technique amounts to a digital dragnet of innocent Americans phones. And so the point really that I want to bring, you know, that I want to go full circle with here is that in large part now we talked about earlier you know, about getting beyond the hardware and, you know, relying much on the software. The point being here is that I that I really want to I, I keep driving home. You know, something I've been driving home for weeks, actually for months, is we need multiple internets, right? Well, okay, I'm going to try and stop talking about that. Maybe people are sick of me uh, saying that. But the the point I really do want to bring to to life for you with this Xcode story and with the, these dirt boxes from these dirt bags. Uh, well, that came out wrong. <laughs> but these dirt boxes is that you know, smartphones. If you are looking for that, really you know, that really private, uh, you know, implementation, or if you are looking to put an end to the surveillance state in general, relying less on these devices is key because they are relying on, believe me, I said this before, I'm saying it again, the NSA and the CIA are relying as much upon you using them. Okay. As they are relying on it for their work and they are spreading that around to the police You know, it's not just the NSA using this stuff anymore. Now we got, we have clear stories that is being done all across the board. Okay. So relying less on just this constant, sending them this constant stream of information. Okay. Unless somehow, you know, we made software that sent bullshit information up. That'd be great. Okay. But relying less on that is such an easy way to really, really thwart the surveillance state. Uh, I, I can't recommend doing that enough. You know, I mean the, I know we're so used to being interconnected, but you know, would it really hurt for people to get used to the fact that, well, I can't I'm not gonna answer this right away. I don't think it hurt anybody if, you know, we we slowed things down, not technology, no one's talking about slowing down the movement of technology, but I'm talking about slowing life down a little bit, taking a breather, okay, and you know, not having that, that goddamn thing in your face all the time. I think there's real advantages to Siphoning oneself away, you know, from this this constant, uh, you know, interconnectivity as it stands, you know, with the surveillance state in place, Uh, you know, sending them less information is maybe as powerful as any form of encryption could be. And I know the, the, the answer always is, well, if my phone doesn't send it, somebody else's will and all that stuff. Well, that's why you make it a mainstream point. And get it across is like, you know, yeah, we don't always have to be connected, you know, whatever. I mean, and there's great potential for being constantly connected. You know, we can talk about that in future episodes of Sovereign Tech, no doubt. OK, but the surveillance state in place, if you're looking to do some form of activism, one of the easiest things you can do is stop sending the surveillance state a shit ton of info. We read uh, a couple weeks ago about dumb phones. Maybe that's something you want to consider. Anyway, I just want to bring that out there. I wanted to bring these points to light. The Xcode thing is really serious, uh, but I think there will be relatively easy solutions to that. People will be looking out for the, you know, the BS Xcode. Um, but the the dirt boxes, ooh, yeah, that could be a problem. I'll be back with more as a sovereign. Tech.
3: ended a great war and united a hundred alien races in peace danger didn't die it just went underground with new heroes and new evils to carry the torch we need to make sure they all understand we will not be intimidated what is wrong with you people we have to take him against himself it's an entire new season of Babylon 5 with all new episodes
1: Babylon 5 is available for download on your favorite torrent site see it now to experience the greatest show in television history. Babylon 5.
0: Oh, we made it. They're not kidding when they say you're the best, Mr. Sovereign.
1: Oh, Elizabeth, you haven't seen anything yet.
0: Oh, really? Really? Why don't I show you? Right here? Out in the woods? On the bike? Elizabeth, I
1: can rise to any... Any... occasion... Eww,
0: Brian.
3: A place that is just as real, but not as brightly lit. A
0: dark side.
1: Hello again, Sovereign Tech listeners. I have another story for you. Now, of course, this is the climax where I can talk about anything I want to talk about. And I have, before all the snow melts at Ice Station Zero here, I have a little story that's always been one of my favorites. And it's a very old story. And it's very, very true. At least what facts are available are true. And what this is, is from Russia. In fact, February 2nd, 1959. Of course, that you know, Soviets are arguably at the height of power at this time. Uh, you know, doing all kinds of wild tests. Does that have anything to do with what we're about to talk about? Who knows. But this is the Dayatlov Pass incident, an incident where ten university students actually ended up only being nine of them. One of them got sick, and in fact, he died recently. Uh, just a just a couple of years ago, in twenty thirteen, I think he died. But the other nine all went up uh, a mountain in Ural. And in fact, I'm going to be terrible with pronouncing the name of it, but it's Kolatseikal, which means mountain of the dead. And there is a a popular pass there, Dayatlov Pass. And they were just doing, I mean, these are university students. They were on break. This kind of thing gets done often in that area of, of Russia or of the USSR at the time. And uh you know nothing nothing out of place. They just decided to go for a, a good hike. Uh, you know, women, men, and all in their all of them were you know again, they're university students, so they're all in their twenties. They're not physically unfit to be taking uh, you know such a travel. And when they get there uh, after a few days, after a couple weeks, suddenly nobody they don't return. And nobody heard back from the students that went up Day Love Pass. So and they were on their way. I mean, they, they were going to uh, to another area of, uh, you know, uh, of the Ural Mountains. And uh, they never showed up there. So everybody just want you know, what what's going on here? You know, and after again, after a couple weeks, people started to look into it. Uh, others were called uh, again. One of the you know, it was only nine of the ten that went there. Uh, And the person that was, you know, that stayed behind because they fell ill uh, had some some interesting insights into this. But we'll get into that in a minute. So the nine students go up day at Lough Pass. And what is known is that they set up a tent. And did their usual camping, it would seem. Uh, Everything was set up, you know, pretty, pretty standard at the at the campsite. But that's where the facts Seem to end. That's where the reliable information uh, starts to go out the door. But then we are left with what the, uh, you know, the teams, the Soviet police, even Soviet military, the investigation, what the investigation finds. And what they found were nine people who were scattered all over this area. Some of them barely clothed, some totally naked, some with only one sock on, some, a couple of them, three of them, I believe, found in the ravine nearby. And again, I mean, it seemed like something scared them so much that they couldn't even get their clothes on. Odd enough that their clothes, you know, were were off. I mean, you think you're out there camping. I mean, this is the middle of winter. You know, in in Russia, I mean, this this is some pretty severe weather to be experiencing for them to be completely naked. You know, I find strange on its own. But the, the part that gets really weird is that it's not like they ran out the front of the tent. No, no, no. They cut the tent open from the inside. So I think, you know, the initial... Reports would be, oh, some kind of animal, a bear or something along those lines, you know, tore in to the tent, you know, and attack them and perhaps mauled them and they weren't ready. And I guess they were naked when they were getting ready for bed or whatever. Uh, no, no. <laughs> these these, you know, students, these hikers ripped this thing open from the inside. Now, It makes sense that if you're in a hurry that perhaps you would do that because at the time zippers weren't the order of the day, certainly not on tents. Uh, (laughs) You had to unbutton it and maybe unbuttoning it would take a little bit of time. But I also think that really people back then were so used to buttons that uh, you can unbutton a fly just about as fast as you could zip them. All right. Uh, Zippers are more of a convenience of production, not necessarily a, you know, and, uh, you know, not necessarily a convenience in speed, perhaps. So that's strange in and of itself. But again, these, you know, these young people start running away from whatever's there. Now, it's very simple, very easy to see the tracks people can follow. That's how they knew the bodies went in. A few of the bodies went into a ravine because they could follow the tracks of the students or of the hikers. But there's no tracks of anything else around. Those same tracks should have stood with, you know, if, if something came in and, and attacked them, you know, a bear, there'd be bear tracks or something like that. And uh, that lends to one of the first explanations to this is that perhaps it was an avalanche uh, of some kind that came down. And that, you know, the, the students were, were already naked and that that was them. The ripping out from the tent was them getting out of the avalanche because the avalanche would have covered the tent and that that snow had had essentially melted uh, away. But I think there's a lot of problems with that. Uh, you know, first off, some of them did get away. And one of them, one of the people that got in that into the ravine, they, they literally, they just fell into the ravine. One of the bodies though, that was found in the ravine must have climbed a tree and looked backwards as to, you know, what was going on now, why would a person climb? Why would a hiker climb a tree, you know, with, with practically no clothes on Uh, who knows? And, and largely the deaths all get chalked up to a degree of hypothermia. Uh, The people found in the ravine uh, had broken bones, uh, of course, and they knew somebody climbed a tree based upon branches that had come down. So what that person was looking back at I have no idea. But also with the tent, I mean, there, there wasn't there just the evidence of it being an avalanche. There wasn't a whole lot there, uh, you know, to, to really show that off. Like, it seems like the, the ground was largely calm other than the fact that, you know, these nine hikers just were running for what seems to be their lives and lives that they lost. So now slight correction. Three of these nine did die from fatal injuries and the other six they're chalking up to to hypothermia. And that's the thing. Some of these Uh, Like their faces appeared to have been beaten. Uh, And, you know, some of the evidence, I'll list off some of the evidence here found from the site. Uh, Let's see. Yeah. Six of them died from hypothermia, three from fatal injuries. Uh, There were no indications of other people nearby uh, in that whole area. Uh, Tent had been ripped from within. That's clear. Victims had died six to eight hours after their last meal. Uh, Traces from the from the camp showed that all group members left the campsite of their own accord on foot. Uh, And then there was the theory that there was the indigenous Mansi people that may have came and and killed them. Uh, The fatal injuries of the three bodies could not have been caused by another human being because the force of the blows had been too strong and no soft tissue had been damaged. Uh, forensic radiation tests had shown high doses of radioactive contamination on the clothes of a few victims and release documents contain no information about the condition of the skier's internal organs. And there were, of course, no survivors of the incident. So that's that's part of the issue. Now, I mentioned one of them survived one of the because originally it was a group of 10 hikers. And the one that survived, uh, Yuri Konsetvich, he had some interesting he attended uh, granted, at 12 years old, but he attended uh, the bulk of the funerals for these hikers. And he recalls their skin having a deep brown tan that they didn't have uh, before. Also, some of the hikers had gray or white hair and showed signs of premature aging. Uh, some of the hikers' clothing, again, was, was found to be very highly radioactive. Uh and another group of hikers that were 50 kilometers south of the incident, so they were a good distance away, that's why they say they weren't nearby, but they were a good distance away, reported that they saw strange orange spheres in the night sky to the north uh, on the night of the incident. So also some, res- uh, some reports suggest that there was a great deal of scrap metal in and around the area, leading to the speculation that the military had utilized the area secretly and may have been engaged in a cover-up. Uh, and so it's, it's really, there's a lot there that a lot of people wonder about. Now, some people theorize that it was actually a lightning ball, uh, that just, you know, that, and those lightning balls literally can, you know, it's a static ball of electricity, uh, that, that can just appear and it can go through cloth without, you know, setting it on fire essentially, right. You'd expect a lightning strike to set it on fire or whatever, but a lightning ball can just appear. And some people think that that's what that's all about. Uh, That it was a lightning ball that went in there. Some people, like we mentioned, there was scrap metal found around. Some people wondered if it was some kind of Soviet military weapon. And it's interesting because let's be clear that the official, you know, wrap up of this whole investigation is that this this is the official three word statement. An unknown compelling force had caused the deaths of these nine people. And that's all they've got. What happened at Day at Lough Pass? How are nine people dead in the 50s? And these reports of premature aging, radiation, people terrified, so terrified, they're ripping open their tent from the inside. I mean, taking no time at all, barely have clothes on. Some of them appear to have been mauled. And no trace of any intruder. Well, the first answer that a lot of people like to come up with is aliens. I'm not inclined to agree <laughs> that it was aliens. But it does make one wonder. So many areas in Soviet Russia were kind of blanketed off uh, for experimentation some experimentation uh to very you know varying degrees of, of extremes uh and often just as the u.s government would uh, often this experimentation would be done without the knowledge of the people that get you know that are being experimented on was it some kind of soviet ex- uh you know experiment uh, some kind of military experiment was there uh you know i mean one would assume if there was some kind of crash you know, that that would uh, make up for the, the scrap metal, that there would have been a lot more evidence of that. Was the evidence cleared up? Why was there no reports about what happened of the condition of the internal organs of these nine hikers? There's no easy explanation to this one. It's another one of those great mysteries. And you know, I'm reminded uh, a lot of people don't realize this, but science in the forties and fifties I mean they were doing like the the Nazis were just had no regard for human life, and some many argue in fact, I'd consider it inarguable that medical knowledge leapt perhaps by centuries due to the Nazis not giving a shit about human life. Did the Soviets engage in similar experimentation? did they I mean, I think it's pretty clear that they didn't have a regard for human life by any means. And were these nine hikers a part of something that defies most explanation? I mean, there's lots of plans that we see from various governments, especially in the 40s and 50s, that, you know, that, like these, these blueprints and whatever, that those certainly defy explanation. Think things like De Glaca, the Bell, and others. What did happen at Day at Luff Pass over 50 years ago? We'll probably never know. But it is interesting to speculate about. I think that's enough Sovereign Tech for this week. Carpe Lucem, everybody. I'll see you on the dark side.
0: The dark side is always there, waiting for
3: us to enter, waiting to enter us. Until next time, try to enjoy the
0: daylight.